0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett.
1: And I'm Sabrina.
0: And today we'll be talking about Corythosaurus and a lot of dinosaur news. So first in the news is an article that comes out of biology letters by Carl T. Bates and others titled, Downsizing a Giant, Reevaluating evaluating Body Mass. So we've heard from paleontologists in the past that dinosaur discoveries often follow a trajectory of maybe the biggest ever to maybe not as big as we thought but still huge and then ultimately well it's similar in size to some other huge dinosaurs (laughs) which in my opinion is largely due to the hype of a new discovery everyone always gets very excited and then they give an initial range of you know smallest possible weight smallest likely weight up to the highest likely weight and most people remember the number on the high end So then when it narrows in on a more likely weight, everybody thinks of it as shrinking, but usually it's kind of in that original range. So it appeared a little bit less likely in the case of Dreadnoughtus because they had both the femur and the humerus, which can be used to get a good indication of a dinosaur's mass. And they also discovered a large number of bones in the tail, a couple in the neck and some ribs that gave a better estimate for its size. Sometimes they try to base all of the weight on one bone, and that always brings up more skepticism than if you have a more complete skeleton. But in this paper, Bates and his co-authors specifically take issue with the scaling equation that was used to estimate the weight near 60 tons, saying that it was wrong and that they should have estimated closer to a 40 ton maximum instead. The discrepancy comes from two different methods used to calculate the weight. The original team used a relationship between the likely size of the animal based on the size of the femur and humerus that it grew to support all of that weight. The new study agreed that this relationship is sound in living tetrapods, or four-legged animals, but believed that it doesn't hold in the case of sauropods. They took a 3D model of the dinosaur's bones and applied um, what they call minimum convex hull, And what that is is its mathematical model around the likely skeleton using other similar species to fill in the missing bones. Then finally, they added some additional size to the minimum convex hull based on data from living mammals and other animals to come up with a final volume that they think the animal would take up. They subtracted out the volume that would have been filled by air, like lungs and air sacs, and then multiplied the remaining volume around the bones and kind of the size of the animal by the density that the animal likely was. You know, they're mostly water, so you can get a good guess. And that came up with their weight. So in the end, they determined that Dreadnoughtus was likely similar in mass to a titan or an Apatosaurus, which they had applied the same method to and came up with results very similar to the method used originally with the femur, So when you compare the minimum convex hull with the applied ratio of an apotosaurus to the scaling equation of the femur of an apotosaurus, you get pretty close agreement. But when you do the two methods on the dreadnoughtus, you end up getting very different results, which is pretty interesting. So the authors are primarily trying to encourage other scientists to use volume and density calculations in their estimate to reduce the uncertainty and establish more plausible limits on the size of creatures that they discover. They also point out the need to compare the two approaches discussed in the study across different dinosaur species to refine weight estimation techniques, and they're hopeful that it might get a better understanding of musculoskeletal adaptations for different dinosaur lineages by using these techniques as well. So the authors do point out that if the specimen was still growing, it will make these recent estimates less accurate. This is because all the models that they used on the minimum convex hull were based on adults, and animals' proportions change as they grow. So if Dreadnoughtus was a juvenile, you know how just like teenage humans sometimes are real lanky and not proportioned the same as adults, they could be looking at a strange-shaped Dreadnoughtus, and it wouldn't match kind of the general trend of these animals as adults. So in other words, they might both be right. <laughs> Maybe the one they found did weigh about 40 tons, but it had these massive legs to support the 60 ton final weight that it would grow to, or something like that. So Ken Lacovara, who published the initial description of Dreadnoughtus, among others, said, quote, there is no physical reason, no biomechanical reason I know of, that will require Dreadnoughtus to have anomalously large limb bones. It's more parsimonious to think that Dreadnoughtus had limbs it needed to have. Quote. That's just another way of saying, well, sure, maybe your model showed that it weighed only 40 tons, but then why would it evolve these legs that could support 60 tons of weight? <laughs> Which is a very good point because animals don't tend to be over engineered, you know. They're all about being the most efficient they can be. Ultimately, my favorite conclusion came from an interview with the National Geographic where Bates said, quote, There's no good way to do these reconstructions of extinct animals. The fairest message is to say that these methods are equally wrong. Ours is just at the lower end, end quote. (laughs) I think that perfectly sums it up. No one really knows how big these things were. They think it was around 40 tons. The original authors thought it might have been around 60 tons. But either way, they're both guessing. Next in the news is an article titled, Why Big Dinosaurs Steered Clear of the Tropics, which was published in the U News Center from the University of Utah. As a side note, I thought it was funny, the website has a tagline, Research from the U, and even though a lot of schools are called the U, and I've moved around from state to state, and everybody always has their own U Like, in Minnesota, it's the University of Minnesota, and in Wisconsin, it's the University of Wisconsin. But I think that the nickname should be given to the University of Utah because Utah starts with a U also. But anyway, that's an aside. (laughs) So this study focuses on the late Triassic, specifically 215 to 205 million years ago, in an area called Ghost Ranch in northern New Mexico. During the late Triassic, this was near the equator, and the research looked at the fossil evidence found there to support their theory that large dinosaurs avoided the equator for, quote, approximately the first 30 million years of their existence, end quote. That's from Randall Ermus the curator of paleontology for the Natural History Museum of Utah. They found evidence for small two-legged carnivores like the Coelophysis, but no evidence of any large dinosaurs in that formation. They had very interesting conclusions as to why there were no large dinosaurs, and it all stemmed from the inconsistent landscape. In the fossil record, they found evidence of a large number of droughts and fires. They discovered that by looking at shifts in the types of pollen found in the stratified sediment, as well as shifts in carbon isotopes that indicated when plant productivity was declining, like it would in a drought. They also found bits of charcoal from wildfires, and by looking at the pieces under microscopes, They were able to tell the burn temperature of the wood, which ultimately indicated the different types of wood, and therefore plant life, that were around at the time. Ultimately, the fossilized evidence showed that archosaurs, crocodilian ancestors, likely dominated the area around the tropics in the late Triassic, but the study did not discuss other time periods or other areas around the Triassic. They also discussed their analysis of preserved soil carbonate and organic matter, which they used to estimate the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at the time. They appeared to range from about 1,200 to 2,400 parts per million, and the researchers are quick to point out that with rising CO2 levels, recently we passed 400 parts per billion, we could begin seeing a decrease in plant life in the tropics as temperatures continue to rise. Once again, scientists find more evidence that global warming could be a big problem from historical information. Next in the news, we have a gem that we didn't mention in our Spinosaurus episode, and it's all about a man in rural Africa that helped some paleontologists piece together the story of the Spinosaurus in the recent years. So Nizar Ibrahim was the lead author on the recent article published in the journal Science describing Spinosaurus aegypticus. But we left out a little bit of his backstory. He traveled to Erfoud in 2008 to look in the Sahara for more Spinosaurus specimens. At that time, a man with a mustache, (laughs) and that's literally how he's described as just a man with a mustache, gave him a cardboard box with some interesting dinosaur-like fossils. Ibrahim was hopeful that these bones might have been from a Spinosaurus, but he wasn't able to confirm it until later when he went over to Morocco and met with some other paleontologists who had a a similar find. When he got there and he discovered that they were from a Spinosaurus, he wanted to find more of the bones and was hopeful that if he went to the same location where these bones were originally discovered, he might be able to find them. But the man who gave him the bones didn't tell him where he got the bones, so he went back to Rafaoud, in search of the man who gave him the fossils. After several weeks while drinking tea at a cafe, he saw the man walk by and chased him down. (laughs) The man eventually showed Ibrahim where he discovered the bones, and they managed to excavate more spines and other Spinosaurus bones from the area. So then, using field books from Stromer and other known Spinosaurus bones, they 3D printed a complete composite skeleton of a Spinosaurus and created a flesh rendering. So that's pretty awesome that they managed to piece together all these bones, and then they could scale the bones so that they all looked like they came from the same size specimen, and they were able to actually 3D print a complete skeleton of it. If you want to see some of these flesh renderings, there are some similar models on 123app.com, and it's a repository of different 3D renderings. Some of them are very cartoonish. I think they're just kind of drawn in a cartoonish way on a computer. There's a lot of them that appear to be scans from a phone. So 123 App, I think the name of the site, comes from their Android app where you can take pictures all the way around an object and it'll make a really neat 3D scan of the object. I don't have any idea how the science on that works, but it's pretty awesome. But sometimes it leaves gaps, and so a lot of the pictures look like they might be pictures of toys sitting on a table because there's kind of half of a table below them. But then there are some that are full realistic creations of a Spinosaurus that looked like they were modeled completely using a computer and having exacting details. So if you're interested in looking at some of those, you can go to that website. We'll have a link in our show notes. In an interview with Wired... Industrial Light and Magic's senior video effects supervisor, Dennis Murin, explains why they chose to use motion capture in the recent Jurassic World movie. So it's pretty unusual to use motion capture with things that aren't humans. (laughs) Usually you use it in like capturing stunts or you'll use it to capture something like the golem character in Lord of the Rings moving around and then they map it but if you're doing something like a dragon or a dinosaur or one of these big monsters or something, it's more common to just make the CGI rendering without any motion capture because it doesn't come easily from the motion capture. Dennis points out that although talented animators can add a lot of detail to moving creatures, using motion capture gave the animals in Jurassic World their own personality as a real person moved around, and it added subtle differences and complexity to the characters that you wouldn't really ever see if they were just modeled and animated without the motion capture. He believes that their motion capture of these dinosaurs has set a new bar for realism, and he thinks there are a couple of things that cause that. So the actors, while they're pretending to be dinosaurs, are impacted by gravity and their environment and other laws of physics that make them move much more realistically than if you put it in a computer and you can make it do whatever you can imagine. So he says that it kind of adds a feeling of weight to the characters because as they walk, you can see their weight shifting in the exact way you would expect it to rather than, you know, sometimes they look like they're floating or just effortlessly moving in other films. For the four raptors in the movie, they actually cast four different actors and they would always use the same actor for each raptor which gave continuity of the characters, which I just loved. Then they would work on matching how the humans' movements would relate to a dinosaur, and then they brought it all together into a form that they could use. Finally, the last thing that they did to make it a little more realistic is they mapped skin over tissue on the dinosaurs to give them a more realistic look, which they think paid off in a big way, especially on Indominus Rex, and I tend to agree. CNN published an article titled 10 of the World's Best Dinosaur Museums, and I think it's interesting that they called it 10 of the World's Best Dinosaur Museums and not THE 10 Best Dinosaur Museums, and I'm kind of glad they did because there are a couple that they left out that I think they should have (laughs) mentioned. Number one on their list is Museum für Naturkund, which is in Berlin, and it has a Brachiosaurus which is over 41 feet tall on display. And that's the tallest articulated dinosaur on display in the world. They also have a rare Archaeopteryx fossil that gave them that position on the list. They gave number two to the Field Museum in Chicago. And that's because of the fantastic T. rex specimen named Sue that we've been talking about ever since our first episode. So... That's obviously a good choice. Number three is the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Science in Brussels. And this one made the list because it has the largest dinosaur hall in the world, which includes 30 iguanodons and interactive displays of the fossilization and digging process. It's interesting. On the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Science website, They actually link to this article talking about CNN thinks we're third best in the world, even though I think they misinterpreted that a little bit. (laughs) Number four is the National Dinosaur Museum in Canberra, Australia. They say that this deserves the number four spot because it has a garden full of dinosaur sculptures and animatronics. And if you've been listening for any more than a week or two, You've heard us talk about lots of these types of attractions of animatronic dinosaurs. And from looking online, it doesn't really appear that there's anything too special about this museum. Maybe I'd totally miss the point and there's something better. And CNN just picked the wrong item to highlight. But from what I can tell, the Australian Museum in Sydney, a few miles away, appears to be a little bit more of a museum experience rather than one of those animatronic gardens full of dinosaurs. Please tell me if I'm wrong, because from what I could tell, it didn't look all that exciting. Number five is the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology in Alberta, Canada, and we've talked about this museum a few times in the past, and it definitely is on our short list of museums to check out soon. It made this list because it has a recreation of a pack of Albertosaurus, which was inspired by a bone bed of 22 specimens found in Alberta, and it has lots of other awesome stuff there too. Number six I thought was a really interesting choice. It's the Wyoming Dinosaur Center in Wyoming, United States. I actually visited this, but Sabrina hasn't made it there yet. It has a complete 106-foot Supersaurus recreation, and you can walk under and through its legs. And they recently acquired the second most complete Archaeopteryx fossil after the Berlin specimen. And they host dig-for-a-day excursions, where you can show up and go out and do some amateur paleontology with experts, which is awesome. I didn't get a chance to do that while I was there. It's in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, and it's a pretty small museum, so I thought it was interesting that that one made the list. Number seven is the Zigong Dinosaur Museum in Zigong, China. It's in the Sichuan area of China, which is far from most of the major cities you'd think of, like Beijing and Shanghai. The museum itself is constructed above the Pu fossil site, and much like Dinosaur National Monument in the U.S., it allows visitors to get a first-hand glimpse of an excavation site. It also has 18 full skeletons on display, along with footprints and skin imprints, and this has to be on your list if you're in China, because it sounds awesome. Number eight they gave to the Iziko Museum in Cape Town, South Africa. It has several dinosaurs unique to Africa on display, including a Carcharodontosaurus skull from North Africa. It looks like there aren't too many dinosaur museums in Africa, so that looks like a great place to get some local information. Number nine they gave to Jurassic Land in Istanbul. They've got a 4D video, they call it, which is one of those things where you sit and you put on 3D glasses and they spray water on your face or whatever when you're supposed to be going through a river. <laughs> That's the fourth D and they have large displays, including both skeletons and animatronic recreations. It looks a little bit more geared towards kids than some of the museums, but it is huge, and it looks like they have a good variety of things, so looks like a good choice. And number 10 they gave to the Fernbank Museum of Natural History in Atlanta, Georgia, which has exhibits on Gigantosaurus and Argentinosaurus and a slew of pterosaurs, which of course we know aren't real dinosaurs, but we'll give CNN a pass on this one. As I mentioned, I'm a little bit surprised that the American Museum of Natural History in New York, Dinosaur National Museum in Utah and Colorado, and the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. didn't make the list, because I think those might be a little bit more significant than some of the other dinosaur museums listed in the article, but maybe they left them out just because they're so well-known and they were trying to make a list of lesser-known museums? I'm not sure. And perhaps the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. didn't make the list since the Fossil Hall has been closed for a few months now. But it it does look like a good list. I haven't heard of a couple of these museums, I should be ashamed to say, (laughs) but definitely some good ones worth checking out. Next in the news is a game, this time not a video game, but a card game, and it's a deck-building game called Apex, and they describe it as a theropod deck-building game. So we talk a fair amount about video games, but this is the first deck-building game we've mentioned, and hopefully this doesn't offend anyone who's really into deck-building games. But if you don't know what a deck-building game is, you may have heard of Magic or Pokemon, and it's that style where you play a card, and then somebody opposing you plays a different card, and you use the cards to kind of attack each other, and you have to collect, you know... You have to use various powers and things to win, and it's kind of a battle strategy game. In this case, the game was created through Kickstarter, and it completed late last year, and it's pretty well rated. It's got about a 7.9 on boardgamegeek.com, which is a site I sometimes use, <laughs> if that tells you something about me. So it's probably worth checking out if you're into dinosaurs, since it's a quote-unquote theropod deck-building game. It's features dinosaurs all over the place and they're also doing a kickstarter right now for some new dinosaur expansion packs and they have some awesome artwork on them so you might want to take a look even if you're not interested in deck building games they're really cool to look at sabrina and i just got lego jurassic world and started playing it it seems good so far we since we just started we haven't seen much of the game but it does start with the opening scene in the original Jurassic Park movie where that raptor cage is being mounted against its enclosure and it gets all intense and everything goes all gory. But since it's a Lego game, it's much less serious and, of course, has much less serious consequences. In the second level, you get to heal that Triceratops that ate the poisonous shrubs like in the movie, and then you get to play as the Triceratops. So it seems like right off the bat they're putting you in the dinosaur characters, and that's super fun. That alone, I think, makes it worth getting the game, but we'll update again when we finish the game. Hopefully soon, but sometimes it takes us a while.
1: Jurassic World earned nearly 512 million dollars worldwide on its opening weekend, which is the first time a movie opened up to more than 500 million, and it broke the world record set by Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 back in 2011, which opened at 483 million. Chris Pratt has already signed on to do sequels, though the director Colin Trevorrow will not be a part of those. There were a couple articles, one in Oregon Live and one in Wired.com about Leonard Finkelman, who is a dinosaur philosopher and professor at Linfield College in Oregon. He teaches a class called The Philosophy of Dinosaurs and he specializes in, quote, the intersection of philosophy and science, according to Oregon Live. And in Wired, said that dinosaurs quote embody a way of asking questions about the world. So basically paleontology uses inductive reasoning. Since there's been a lot of news lately about Jack Horner and creating a dinosaur from a chicken, or even just talk about cloning dinosaurs because of Jurassic World, Finkelman said that a cloned dinosaur would just be a simulation, since we don't actually know exactly what original dinosaurs were like, so we won't actually be able to bring back dinosaurs. It's an interesting thought the washington post interviewed a number of young paleontologists who all say that they love the inaccurate dinosaurs in jurassic park and jurassic world because they made dinosaurs mainstream again and it led to their jobs or careers one paleontologist from the smithsonian said quote if you're a young paleontologist and you have a job the movies have some part in that frankly it's the reason why grown-ups like dinosaurs now instead of just kids up to the age of eight and one of the reasons I think museums have reinvested in dinosaurs is that adults and children come to see them. Therefore, I have a job. None of these museums had a dinosaur paleontologist in 1985, and now they all do, end quote. Which is kind of interesting to think about, and we've talked about in previous episodes, like, oh, Jurassic World has decided to ignore all the science from the past 20 years and keep going with what it's doing, and some people are upset about that, but it's interesting to hear the other side, especially from actual paleontologists. But speaking of making the dinosaurs in Jurassic World and Jurassic Park a little more realistic, paleo artist Josh Cotton, who we interviewed in Episode 21, Ultrasaurus, launched his YouTube channel recently with a video that shows his transformation of the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park to now include features that scientists think it had, such as feathers. The video is about three minutes long, and it's worth watching. The Velociraptor, even with the feathers, I think still looks terrifying. Still going along with the Jurassic World theme, There's a Polish prankster, S.A. Wardega, who pranked Chris Pratt, the hero in Jurassic World, he played Owen Grady, with some dinosaurs that they made. There's a video, about two minutes long, and we'll link to it, and it's pretty funny. Pratt took it all in stride, and even after the initial scare, I think he ends up petting the dinosaurs, so he was definitely a good sport about it. There's another dinosaur video that I think is worth watching. Quentin Capel started a web series on YouTube called We Have a Dinosaur, and the first episode's up, it's only about a minute long, but it's hilarious. It features a man trying to have breakfast, but he's dealing with a cheeky CGI theropod, and it's like dealing with a stubborn pet, like a cat or something, it's pretty hilarious. A site called Topless Robot posted a list of 17 dinosaur cameos in pop culture, and some of them, I didn't even realize that they were in there, I guess because they're not always prominently featured or whatever, but it includes Twilight Zone, a couple episodes of Twilight Zone, the amazing Spider-Man comic where he fights a T-Rex, and the number one on the list is a commercial that appears in the 1987 movie Robocop. In more recent movies... Pixar, we talked about, they completely changed the cast for its movie Good Dinosaur, and apparently the reason is because they rewrote the story and wanted a younger actor to voice Arlo, who's the main dinosaur. So of the original cast, now only Frances McDormand, who is the voice of Arlo's mother, is still a part of the movie. So before, the cast included big names like Neil Patrick Harris, John Lithgow, Bill Hader, and Judy Greer, and now some of the voice actors include Sam Elliott, Jeffrey Wright, and Steve Zahn. According to the director, Peter Sohn, the film's only about 50% complete, but the movie will open this Thanksgiving weekend, and I know Garrett and I are looking forward to seeing it. And last, for those living in Texas, specifically Austin, because Texas is pretty big, there was an exhibit at the Mondo Gallery, which is a gallery open Tuesday through Saturday, 12pm to 6pm, and from June 12th to June 27th, so unfortunately, by the time this episode airs, it'll have closed, but they were celebrating Jurassic Park and Jurassic World with an exhibit called When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, so... It looked really cool. If anyone who's listening had a chance to check it out, please share with us or post some pictures to our Facebook wall. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. Corythosaurus, which was requested from Brenna via Facebook, so thanks, Brenna. Corythosaurus is a hadrosaur or duck-billed dinosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in North America. Fossils have been found, I believe, only in southern Alberta, Canada, so Corythosaurus may have only lived in one small area. Its name means helmet lizard. The type species is Corythosaurus cassuarius, and so the name Corythosaurus is Greek helmeted lizard. And the name Casuaris comes from the cassowary bird, which is a small, but I believe ranked like the most vicious bird that's currently living. People have to wear riot gear when they're around them because they're so territorial and they can be very vicious. And this is because Corythosaurus had some similarities with cassowaries. So Corythosaurus had an estimated length of nine meters or 30 feet, and its skull, including the crest It has a crest on top of its head, part of the helmet look, was about seventy-one centimeters or twenty eight inches tall. It weighed maybe between three to five tons. It was first described in nineteen fourteen by Barnum Brown. Brown found the holotype specimen in nineteen eleven, though there are many complete specimens now, and the holotype's actually missing the last part of its tail and part of its forelimbs. But what's interesting is this holotype had impressions of scales. So again, Corythosaurus had crests that looked like the crests of a cassowary, and the crest may have been used for vocalization because scientists think it could have amplified sound. The holotype specimens now in the American Museum of Natural History along with a second specimen that Brown and Peter Kazin found in 1914, and they're put in their quote, original death poses, meaning the way they were found in the ground. Brown actually described the second specimen in 1916 and gave a more detailed description of Corythosaurus. Also, Charles H. Sternberg found two well-preserved specimens in 1912, but unfortunately they were lost in 1916 while they're being shipped to the paleontologist Arthur Smith Woodward in the UK. This is during World War One, and the ship was sunk by a German merchant raider. More than 20 Corythosaurus skulls have been found, and there used to be seven different Corythosaurus species. In addition to Casuarius, there was Bicristatus, Brevicristatus, Excavatus, Frontalis, and Intermedius. But in 1975, Peter Dodson studied all of these species and found that the different sizes and shapes may have actually been due to gender and age. So now only one species is recognized, Cassuarius. Some studies, however, say that Corythosaurus intermedius is its own species because it lived slightly later than Corythosaurus casuarius and it's slightly different. Brown originally classified Corythosaurus as part of the family Trechodontidae, which is now Hadrosauridae, but then he found that it was possibly an ancestor to Hippocrosaurus, which is... It's very similar except for its development of vertebrae and limb proportions. So now Corythosaurus is part of a family called Lambasaurinae, which have similar skulls and crests, and I'll get into a little more details on that family in a little bit. The holotype specimen was a carcass that had floated up on a beach. There were shells and water-worn bones and a turtle preserved near it. Scientists used to think that Corythosaurus lived in water because it also seemingly had webbed hands and feet. But it turned out these webs were actually deflated padding, which is seen on some modern mammals. But at the time, the theory was that they could swim in deep water and use their crest to store air. However, Corythosaurus probably lived in woodland forests, and they may have visited swampy areas. They were probably bipedal, and they had short arms and a long tail, and they may have gone on all fours to eat low-lying plants. They were probably picky about what they ate, maybe juicy fruits and young leaves, and scientists think that because they had this narrow beak it's a toothless beak with hundreds of cheek teeth, and they would have used their beaks to eat soft vegetation. There's been some debate over what they ate. One Corythosaurus that was preserved was found with what's thought to be its last meal in its chest cavity, so they found remains of conifer needles, seeds, twigs, and fruits. But some scientists aren't convinced that this is the type of things it ate. Corythosaurus had a great sense of hearing, and it was probably Cathamaral. The reason scientists think that it was Kathimeril is based on these bony circles, these rings that are found in many reptiles, birds, and dinosaurs that probably help their pupils adjust, but it's not entirely clear what it's for, I don't believe. Because Corythosaurus was probably Kathimeril, it may have eaten small amounts of food at a time to digest quickly, and also being cathemeral, this would have made it easier to live alongside other herbivores that were either diurnal or nocturnal, active only during the day or active only at night. Corythosaurus was probably a herding animal. They may have gone to higher ground to reproduce. Predators may have included Albertosaurus or Tyrannosaurus or Trudon, especially to juvenile Corythosaurus. The crest. On top of its head had extended tubes that were these complex nasal passages, and its head crest is hollow, which is why it's classified in the subfamily Lambiosaurine. There's a few uh, ideas on what the crest would have been used for. It may have been used to call out warnings or let others know, hey, there's food nearby, or to attract mates. And if the crest was used for display, its hollowness may have helped reduce the weight of the crest. Another Lambiosaurine includes Parasaurolophus, to give an idea of the types of dinosaurs in this group. Males had larger crests than females, and in general, the size and shape of the crest vary based on gender and age. Scientists think that it made loud, low-pitched sounds like a trombone or a wind or other type of brass instrument. And they also think that Corythosaurus started growing its crest when it reached half the size of an adult. Ohio University did a CT scan in 2008 that found Corythosaurus had a Delicate inner ear and could hear low frequency sounds. Corythosaurus also, unfortunately, had no real defense mechanisms. But Scott Persons from the University of Alberta found that while Corythosaurus had smaller strides than Tyrannosaurids, they had a lot more endurance. So, on long pursuits, they would have lasted longer. Again, the holotype specimen of Corythosaurus had skin impressions, and this is actually fairly com- well maybe not common but it occurs more with hadrosaurs than other types of dinosaurs and matt davis from yale university suggested that the reason for this is because hadrosaurs may have had tougher textures compared to other dinosaurs and he came to this conclusion when he reviewed reports on dinosaur skins from 1841 through the present and found that in 180 reports, 46% of the fossils with skin were hadrosaurs. He also looked at data from 343 dinosaurs from the Hell Creek Formation, and 20 of the 22 dinosaurs with skin fossils were hadrosaurs, which is 91%. The group Hadrosauridae, the duck-billed dinosaurs, were common herbivores from the Cretaceous, whose fossils have been found in Asia, Europe, and North America. They're descendants of Iguanodontian dinosaurs, and they had a similar body layout. Hadrosaurids were the first dinosaur family identified in North America based on fossil teeth found between 1855 and 1856, and Joseph Leidy studied the teeth and named the genera Trachodon and Thespecius, though Trachodon's no longer considered a valid genus because it was found that it also included ceratopsids, and those two different. In 1858, scientists associated the teeth of the Hadrosaur teeth with Hadrosaurus falci, named after William Parker Falk. And eventually, they found a few more parts to this Hadrosaurus in New Jersey, and actually, now that specimen is fondly referred to as Hattie, and we talked about Hattie in a previous episode. If you go to Haddonfield, New Jersey, you can see the spot, which is actually just at the end of a suburban street where the bones were found, the site, and then you can see the fossil on display at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University in Philadelphia. Edward Drinker Cope first used the name Hadrosauridae in 1869. And just to go back to hadrosaurs having fossilized skin, there was one nearly complete specimen found in 1999 in the Hell Creek Formation, which is nicknamed Dakota. And scientists were able to calculate its muscle mass because it was so complete. And it had fossilized skin, ligaments, tendons, and even some internal organs. There's 2 subfamilies in Hadrosauridae. There's the Lambiosaurines, which have hollow crests, and sorolophens, which have solid crests. And actually, before 2010, most hadrosaurids were classified as sorolophens. Hadrosaurus had lots of teeth in the back of their mouth to chew up the food, which is probably what made their group as a whole very successful compared to sauropods in the same time period. Mark Pernell found in 2009 that hadrosaurs had a hinge between its upper jaws and skull, and the upper jaw pushed outwards and sideways when chewing while the lower jaw slid against the upper teeth. Vincent Williams, Paul Barrett, and Mark Pernell found in 2009 that hadrosaurs probably ate horsetails and low-lying vegetation based on how they chewed, instead of twigs or stems. But... This contradicts the finding of the hadrosaur with its last meal in its stomach, so this is up for debate. However, there have been some coprolites found that show that hadrosaurs may have eaten rotting wood, which would have had fungi and some kind of nutritious invertebrates.
0: And our fun fact of the day comes from an interview with Jack Horner on MSN.com. He said, Based on the evidence of pigmentation cells in the skin and proteins from fossilized feathers, We can say that dinosaurs could have come in all the colors that birds are today, including pink. So if you're watching Jurassic Park or some other dinosaur movie, imagine them covered in pink feathers. Because you don't know. Maybe they were.
1: (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. If you signed up for our newsletter before June 19th and filled out our form, then we will be sending those ebooks to you as soon as we can. So please stay tuned and thank you for your patience. Until next time.